0: We look up to. I know we had a really good conversation um, about sports, basketball. I think the Winter Olympics is on snow sports. Uh, musicians, yeah. So today's Bible reading is from Colossians chapter one, verses fifteen to twenty-three. Before I begin, please join with me in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you that we can worship you this morning as your people together. I pray um, as we hear your word being read. Um, and as Pastor Matt preaches, Lord, that you would soften our hearts and help us to behold your glory, please show us Christ in all His greatness and humble our hearts before him. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Colossians chapter 1 verses 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is the word of the Lord. (laughs)
1: That's a good morning alarm to everyone. Hey, um, we're going to be uh, continuing on in our series looking at Colossians. Now, hey, if you haven't got one of our little Colossians booklets that goes along with this series, there are some more just down that back table there. Hey, feel free to jump up, grab one, grab a pen if you like to take notes, because there's actually room in there to take some notes. Uh, And we're going to be having a look at this series on the boundless treasures that we find in Christ. But hey, um, I don't know about you, the kind of discussion that you had going there about uh, someone that you're a real fan of. Uh, you know, I think there's been some real good, robust discussion that's been going around, uh, around the sports media world lately. Uh, if you know, the Australian Open just concluded last Sunday. A classic match, right? Uh, Daniel Medvedev versus Rafael Nadal. Uh, did, did anyone actually watch to the end? Anyone start? A few people. Okay. Oh, well, almost. Almost. Yeah. I'll probably like maybe some of you. I watched like the first two sets and man, Nadal was getting smashed. Uh, he looked like he had no hope. Uh, switched off. Even, even my wife, who's a huge Nadal fan, had pretty much given up. Uh, and lo and behold, the man climbed Mount Everest and he managed to come back and win. Extraordinary. 35 years of age, playing out a five set, five hour match. Well, hey, that's sort of ignited this uh, whole debate at the moment about uh, who actually is the best. Now, Nadal uh, just went up. He just uh, uh, came up, and he's become uh, a step ahead of everyone else. So he's now on Grand Slam number 21. But, of course, who are those other two guys? Yeah, Roger Federer and Novak Djokovic. Okay, Uh, quick poll. Who is the best? Okay, who's going to say Nadal? Okay, all right, Handful. Uh, Roger Federer. Ooh, okay, okay, getting a few more. Okay, Novak Djokovic. Oh, man, everyone's, everyone's bailed out of the Djokovic bandwagon, haven't they, Mr. Anti-Vaxa? vaxxer right, okay. Uh, well, hey, you know, I reckon the debate will rage on, uh, and who knows what's going to come next? Who knows who's going to be the next big thing in tennis? You know, I have to say that... Uh, uh, one of the things that uh, we love is that we all love a winner, don't we? We all love a winner. We all want to jump onto the bandwagon of the person who's going to be the next big thing. Because hey, who wouldn't want to be on the team that's winning all the time? Isn't that when your guy wins, when your girl wins, whoever it is, you feel like you've won, don't you? Well, in church, uh, church this morning, we're going to be learning about someone who was just utterly supreme, so supreme that there is truly, there is no other like him in all of the universe, and it's a reason why you should jump on his bandwagon, not just for your tennis following, but for your wife. Now, last week we started looking at this book of Colossians, Uh, Paul the Apostle is writing to a church, a church in Colossae, uh, telling them about how thankful he is for their faith, for their love for each other. And it's all because they heard the good news of the gospel and they believed it and it's bearing fruit in them, he said. Now, this week, we're going to see that Paul wants to see them not just know the gospel, know their salvation, but then to get really established and founded in the gospel as well. Right? He wants them to be firmly convinced that they found something so ultimate, so supreme, that they can rest them from their searching because they have found the ultimate they found Christ. So we're going to be picking apart these verses that we had read out for us earlier in verse 15 to 23. Now I will say that if you kind of felt like, wow, this is a this is a big passage. There's a lot going on here. Uh, it feels a bit like uh, a bit like zooming out, like like you know, I'm, uh, uh, with my son, we've been kind of playing around Google Maps and we might zoom out just to kind of get a good look at the whole world. Well, uh, Paul in this passage, he's he's kind of zooming us out so far that it's a bit like stepping out of the entire universe, out of all of time and history and space, to, to kind of get a glimpse at how all the bits of everything fit together and we're going to see that there is one person at the whole center of the universe who dominates and rules it all his name is jesus verse uh, chapter 1 verse 15 the Son is the image of the invisible god Now, I'm not going to actually stop that. I'm going to keep reading this. Jesus, the Son, is the image of God. That means he perfectly reflects God, reflects God in his character, in his nature. God, God is invisible. You can't see God. But Jesus makes him known. It's Jesus. You want to know God? Look to Jesus. You know, don't look to the scientists or the philosophers who try to understand, work out who God is, if he exists. No, if you're going to see God, look to Jesus. At least that's the claim here, that actually you can understand, know God through Jesus. In fact, the other New Testament writers agree, uh, John's Gospel puts it like this, uh, verse 18, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. So we're going to see just how Jesus is like God, the the ultimate being, the ultimate supreme being. So read on with me. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. All right, that's a dense little bunch of ideas there. I don't know if you got all of that, so we're just going to break that down a little bit. It says Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Now, that's not saying that Jesus was born first. It's not like God created the universe and Jesus was the first thing he created. No, no, firstborn is the idea of of, of being a position, a position of privilege, a position of power, of, of honor, of authority, of being the heir, the heir of creation. Right, so Jesus occupies that position of eminence over over everything, and not only does Jesus stand over creation, it says actually all things were created in him, through him, and for him. Okay, now that's that Jesus, both the agent by which creation came into being, and all things were created. For him he is the reason for creation he is the goal and the purpose of creation he's the lord of time and history everything that has been created everything in history began with jesus and everything in creation and history has led up to jesus and it's led up to him showing us who god is who the creator is and everything in creation and history is going to wrap up with jesus standing there as the judge of the universe and the head of the new Creation in verse 17, he is before all things, and all things hold together. See, because all creation is made by him and for him, and he also holds the whole world in his hands. And as we read on, he is the head of the body, the church He is the beginning, and the firstborn from among the dead, so in everything he might have the supremacy. Now, this is the kind of thing that's supposed to just blow your minds, all right? That Jesus, he's ahead of the creation. He's ahead of the church. He's ahead of the resurrection of the dead. He's ahead of the new creation. What a resume that is, right? You have to kind of sum that up, right? Firstborn, privilege, honor, authority, the agent by which uh, creation was created, the reason for creation, the sustainer of creation, the firstborn over the new humanity, the new creation as well. Right, this is meant to boggle your mind, right? This is a passage that's meant to go, whoa, if this is true, if this is genuinely true, then man, Jesus is more important than anything else in the whole universe. This is what he's saying. The very reason for its existence, its continued existence, the, the destination of creation, like it tells you exactly where everything is headed, that ultimately is headed towards Jesus' reign and rule over the, the, the universe. He's the Lord of the past, of the present, of the future. In other words, Jesus is supreme over everything, over everything. Do you get that? Like this passage is sort of like this snowball that just kind of keeps going and going and going, becomes this avalanche until you sit there undeniably understanding that, hey, here's the one who's at the center of everything. He's a Lord over everything. Visible, invisible, heaven, earth, He's the king, the Lord, he's the master, he's the architect, he's the sustainer of everything. This is huge, this is mind boggling. He's meant to kind of give shape to everything to reality, to the world, the universe, creation. You see, there's something that's true for every single person on earth, and it's everyone's got a worldview, everyone's got a way by which they understand existence reality and us it it's a certain way of seeing the world seeing reality right like worldview asks you ask some of those big life questions right some of these questions might be something like this what's the nature of the world around us where did it all start and where does it end who am i in all of this and what's wrong with the world what's the remedy what's the fix for the world now, everyone in existence has some way of understanding the world, understanding themselves, and understanding what's happening around them. You know, to kind of illustrate this a little bit, the atheist has very different answers to those questions, to how you would answer that if you were a Christian, if you understood everything that Paul's just written about here in Colossians. Here's a quote from uh, Bertrand Russell, who's a very famous uh, atheist philosopher. I'll try and read this and try and understand the, the story as, uh, as uh, Bertrand Russell would lay it out, okay? Man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving, that is, his origin, his growth, his hopes and his fears, his loves and his beliefs, uh, but, but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms, That no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. That all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction. In the vast heat death of the solar system, that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of the universe in ruins." Man, just compare that to what we just read in Colossians, right? You see what their answer is? There's no creator behind the universe. It's just a random chance of colliding atoms. No purpose, no meaning, just blind chance. And hey, everything's going to burn and be extinct one day due to some galactic event. Uh, Everything humanity has done and has achieved in history will be just swept away into the dustbin of the universe it's very depressing isn't it it's very depressing i mean not all atheists will kind of swing totally into like just meaninglessness like this sounds like but you know i'll tell you i reckon the christian view offers a worldview that is much more compelling much more true and much more representative of the actual world that we live in that there is a reason for its existence for its beauty You see, the Christian story is a beautiful story. It's one that begins in creation, that was planned and purposeful. God created human beings in his image so we can have a relationship with him and that we can be fruitful, we can multiply. And and human beings, yes, we know that we rebelled against God. We turned those good things that God gave us and we twisted them, corrupted them, and, and death enters into the world. But at the center of the Christian story is that God was in Christ, Reconciling the world to himself, paying the penalty for the sins of the world. That's a much more beautiful and compelling and true and accurate representation of our world, in my opinion. As Paul goes on, as he explains this central plotline, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. See, not only was Jesus the supreme Lord in creation, but he's the one who's supreme in fixing it again, in reconciling the world to himself. See, maybe you know what it's like when a, when a relationship just isn't right, right? Maybe with a spouse, uh, with a friend, with your parents, perhaps, when things just aren't right, you know you can't—you just can't quite look them in the eye, and you, and you and you sort of walk past each other. But you know you're, you're really kind of just struggling to love that person. You feel the tension there. See, what you're feeling is that need for reconciliation, for enemies to become friends again. And at the centre of the Christian story is a broken relationship between God and humanity. All the disasters, the violence, the poverty, all signs of our sickness as to humanity. What a mess that we have made of our world. And that tension between that exists between God and humanity can only be fixed through death, through sacrifice, to heal the wounds of the relationship that are there, the death that Jesus bears on the cross. Verse 21 once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. There's a beautiful picture, a beautiful picture of the God who pursued, who loved the rebel, who loved the one who rejected him. He loved the unlovable. You know, reconciliation is a beautiful thing. But it's a costly thing as well. Now, at Rwanda, you know, about 20-ish, 25 years ago, it was one of the worst genocides in all of history. A tribe turned on tribe, neighbor on neighbor, family on family. 800,000 people died in about 100 days. About 100 days. Now, it took actually a couple of years before some peace started returning, when families started returning to their villages. But the thing is. You can't just like, forget all that violence and bloodshed that happened. You know, People were struggling to be able to see eye to eye with each other. Here's a picture of a couple of guys. They're friends now, but the, the bloke on the right called Calixti was part of a mob that killed Andrew. The guy on the left killed his wife and her family. Now, after the violence had uh, uh, gone down, Andrew actually had Calixti imprisoned for his role in that mob. But upon his release, Andrew and Calixte were able to reconcile wow, the power of the gospel. That is, as Calixte came out, he sought Andrew out. He asked for forgiveness. He asked for that because he knew that there was no way that he could have peace in his heart apart from that. And Andrew being and Christian also wanted to release them. He wanted to actually release them both from the pain that's there. He said that actually he didn't want to cling on to the bad pain and the, the memories of that evil inflicted. He didn't want to be a prisoner to his anger. And so these two guys reconciled and became lifelong friends. In fact, they didn't just stop there. These two guys now run a church together. They run a church together, particularly focused on trying to bring people back together, bring forgiveness and reconciliation together, bringing enemies together. Now, these guys, man, I reckon they understand that what that reconciliation took was immensely costly, bringing enemies together, sworn enemies, enemies for whom there's been pain and evil done. Friends, this is just a little illustration of what Christ has done for us. Yes, the one who rules the universe has pardoned us, our sin, our rebellion, our evil deeds. He could have but flicked his finger and destroyed us all, and yet he has made us like holy in his sight, without blemish. And, you know, these stories like this are extraordinary, but they can only become as a result of, I reckon, a cosmic reconciliation, right? I mean, how can two sworn enemies like these guys be friends again, apart from the miraculous work of the gospel in them as they reflect the miraculous work of reconciliation between man and God? You see, we have a meaning, we have a purpose, we have a place in the universe because we were all created through Jesus. Jesus. And Jesus comes and he redeems us and he ensures that as as holy, blameless people, we will be able to walk into its final destination, the new heavens and the new earth, as people without blemish. How extraordinary. See, it's not just true, but it's beautiful as well. See, I showed you that picture before. It's actually a picture of uh, the Sistine Chapel uh, there, Michelangelo's most famous work. A beautiful picture of God reaching out and uh, touching Adam, as in some way uh, that's a picture of, of creation, of creating man in, our, in his image. So there's nothing else that I think truly compares to that, is there? I mean, it's, it's such a beautiful, perfect picture. And even here in Paul's high-flying poem or hymn, or whatever it is, about Christ, it's there, it's meant to make us realise what we've got in Christ. You see, the thing is, This Colossian church, they know Jesus. They've accepted Jesus. But Paul wants them to know exactly just how great a treasure they do have in Christ. So you could sum it up a bit like this. If you have Christ, then there is nothing in the universe to fear. Nothing. You're with the supreme Lord of creation, the Lord of eternity. You're His how can there be anything in this entire world that could threaten or scare you or take you away? And so Paul says, because of that, don't move on to anything else. Don't leave Christ behind. Treasure him above all else. Above all else. You see, I think Paul's concern here isn't that they don't know Christ. No, they know Christ. His concern is that maybe they don't fully recognize or treasure just what they do have in him. He's concerned that maybe other things might start to to draw them away, other treasures, other gold that might lure them away, other things that might start to appear more alluring than following Jesus. And I wonder if that's not a few of us here today too. You know, you know Christ, maybe because of your family, maybe because a friend at uni or school or someone told you about Jesus. Maybe you came along to an event and you got saved. But you don't realise just how good you have it. Just how good you have it to be Christ's and for him to be yours. You see, when that happens, when we don't really treasure Jesus for who he is, our heart very quickly, easily wanders, doesn't it? Takes up other pursuits. Seeks after Christ comforts and leisure, and, and that's the thing that, you know, what, am I, what I can consume or, or, or watch or experience, that's, that's really what I'm living for. Maybe it's your work, starts to just take over your life or, or, or your family, and then Jesus just becomes something of an, of an afterthought, or, or worse, maybe Jesus is almost like a means to an end, a, a way to get to those things. But you know what? That is a false treasure. It's a false treasure. It's a false treasure for me. Every time I jump on social media and I see the the fun experiences and, and lives that a lot of my friends might be living, it's a false treasure. Because the real treasure is knowing the Creator and Sustainer and Savior of the universe, who loves me and redeemed me and reconciled me with God. But maybe there's another kind of person who's sitting here before, uh, before us and, and that you've been more or less just following the secular worldview. You actually don't know Jesus. And I, I want to actually say a word to you about this because, well, I reckon maybe there's something about the world, about your life, that just doesn't quite feel right. You've been chasing after the world's things, but you know what? <clears throat> something about this God thing keeps itching at you. You know, it's like the beach ball. You try to keep down under the water, but it keeps just popping up again and again. And here you are listening here this morning, or you're, you're online, and there's part of you that realizes that there's got to be more to life. There's got to be more to life than random atoms and the passing of time. And you, you kind of wonder, you know, am I in some sort of matrix? Am I just not realizing the reality of what's out there? But Jesus offers you the alternative. A world with purpose, with direction, with a destination. A world where where love is real because God so loved the world that He sent His one and only Son in it to save it. And you know that you're not actually friends with God because well, you've never really acknowledged Him. Well, friend, Jesus is in one who rules the universe. You see, it might just be the time to jump onto that bandwagon because he is the Lord, the King, the Master, Sustainer, the Architect. He is all of that. The one who would judge the living and the dead and the one who offers forgiveness to anyone who would turn to him. See, church, I hope that that person and his work of Jesus Christ, I hope that it's the centre of your life he's the centre of the universe and he rules it. And I hope it's something that you love, that you treasure, that you will never, ever move from. And that this year would be a year in which you get to know him and to love him more. Why don't we pray together? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your scripture that teaches us that moulds us, It helps us to know the Jesus who entered into our world, who, who's the perfect image of yours, that we can know you,
0: that we can know
1: the creator who made the world, who sustains it, and the one who reconciles it and will bring us home to be with you forever. Father, we pray for those of us who we know in our hearts that we do not have Jesus at the centre of it. Father, will you help us to repent, to turn to him, to make Jesus our Lord, that we would make commitments this year that keep him as our Lord and our Saviour and at the centre of our lives. Father, we pray for the one who doesn't yet know him, that they might recognise the truth, the truth of the reality that Jesus brought to bear when he made the world and when he came to save it. And we pray, Lord, that we would each bow the knee to him and we would accept his offer of forgiveness, that we might indeed know you the creator and the universe of the universe we pray all this in jesus name amen